Hi everyone, you're listening to Beyond the Benchmark, the EFG podcast. My name is Mo Zafsal. Today I have a very special guest, I have Richard Byworth, who is the CEO of Equinex, a Nasdaq listed company and focused on um, cryptocurrencies and everything digital. Uh, Richard, welcome. Thanks, Mo. It's great to be here. I guess let's go straight to it. So, Richard, can you maybe sort of describe your business? You started as CEO in August 2018. Maybe give us a quick description of your journey in that role and also how um, uh, Equinex is set up today and the different activities you do. It's quite varied. Prior to me moving into the CEO role, we were actually a cryptocurrency mining company. And the reason that I transitioned into the CEO role was more because we wanted to focus towards being a full services financial firm around crypto. Um, <clears throat> most of the founding team had come from traditional finance and we'd seen a real gap in the market around a credible player that could bring derivatives in the space to the forefront, but also infrastructure that could be used by institutions and that was regulated um, and also um, not giving way to reputational risk through good governance, uh, obviously good regulation, um, but also acting in fit and proper way around these assets that we, you know, have seen emerge from this very nascent technology, um, but really should be treated in the same way that we treat traditional financial assets in, in sort of the guise of regulation and, and oversight. When did you first buy into Bitcoin then or mine Bitcoin? <laughs> So I personally first bought Bitcoin after reading the book Sapiens uh, by Yuval Harari, um, where he talked about societal constructs and, and money um, and kept mentioning Bitcoin, which I had previously dismissed as some scam on the internet. Um, but I, I had such a high regard for, for him after reading this book that I started looking into it and actually made my per first purchase in in May of 2017. So it was around the $1,000 mark. But uh, yeah, just coming back to Equinix very quickly. Um, so really from that point where we decided that we wanted to move the company into being a full financial services provider, we went down the route of building product and infrastructure. So on the infrastructure side, we have our own exchange. Um, we're quite different to many other exchanges that you see in this space in that we don't market make on the exchange. Um, that we do obviously always look towards regulation. Uh, today we operate under the Payment Services Act framework through an exemption from the Monetary Authority in Singapore. Um, we have our own segregated custodian, which is obviously a service provider to the exchange. That's, that operates in the UK, out of vaults in Heathrow and other areas. Um, but it also operates under the FCA's AMLD5 framework. Um, it's an insured, certified, accredited solution um, that has been designed really um, to provide peace of mind for both institutions and individuals when storing these assets. The biggest problem I had when storing Bitcoin was what, what would happen to this Bitcoin if something happened to me and I get hit by a bus? So within the custodian, we, we built in legacy planning um, that people can make sure that if something were to happen to them, then at least their uh, family and um, next of kin can get access to those assets, which I think is fundamentally extremely important. 
Um, on the product side, we've built out an asset management firm. Um, so we have a fund of crypto hedge funds that's focused on the very unique alpha that's available in crypto. Um, 80% of the allocation of the portfolio is towards market neutral strategies. The other 20% is allocated towards more directional, but in that directional bucket, it's alpha rather than beta. So we're really focused on finding managers that are very uh, ingrained in the in the industry and in, in the various communities and making sure they're getting first looks. So, you know, think of a Sequoia equivalent in the crypto space, making sure that you're getting that level of access to deals. Um, and so the portfolio has done extremely well um, on a, you know, very much a largely market neutral basis. It's up 146% uh, live today over the last two years, operates out of Switzerland under the Arif program from Finma. And uh, other than that, we also have our own structured products business, which is actually launching its first products uh, this month um, with a few partners in Switzerland um, and going into some of the, the private banks in Switzerland as well. So your your businesses are, are kind of s- structured everywhere. So Switzerland, you mentioned, Singapore, Hong Kong. Um, mm. h- how is it organized? The reason that we went through multiple jurisdictions is because it is a global business. We do service global customers. What we want to do is find regulatory frameworks for specific parts of each of the business that are the most credible regulators, but also the most flexible and innovative in that specific um, product bucket or infrastructure bucket. Um, So, you know, we were the first to uh, get approved under the FCA's framework in, in the UK. Um, and I think that was an important moment as well to sort of demonstrate the quality of what's been built under probably one of the world's most credible regulators, um, but also that they're quite flexible with the way that they take a view to the custody. Um, that said, it's a very thorough process. Um, they do a very high level of due diligence around things like disaster recovery, backups, and the overall tech stack. Um, to the same sort of level that they would actually do um, for, you know, banks, technology uh, when approving them. So, you know, what we want really is always to have that oversight and credible governance, but also a bit of flexibility. You know, I'm sure we'll talk about it, but there have been some faux pas by regulators that have actually really impeded the industry and meant that they've lost business and lost opportunity for their citizens as well. So we want to always find that fine balance between the most credible regulator, but also having a flexible and innovative approach. When I looked at your business, one of the things that really um, attracted, certainly when I looked at it, was attracted me was the whole concept of a DigiVault, which is one of your uh, areas, um, which you just described, and then how that feeds into into the the exchange and then... Uh, how that feeds into your structured products areas and ETFs and so on and so forth. Can you just describe how that how that filters through? For example, you know, if you, if you want to have an exchange traded product, you want to make sure that those assets are safe. Um, you want to make sure that those assets are not assets that have been used in criminal transactions that have been gone through a significant level of KYC and AMLD, AML checks. Um, and so 
by having the infrastructure that supports our investment products business, you know, we, we can give that guarantee that your assets are sitting in an insured, certified, accredited custodian, as well as having been checked coming through the exchange from a, a KYC and AML perspective in that those assets are not tainted in any way. And again, you know, we'll, I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll talk about ESG because I'm sure it's always a concern of your listeners, but, you know, ESG does cover social and, you know, that's an element that's important around that AM, AML side of, of how these assets are used or have been used previously. So you can have tainted assets in crypto um, when Bitcoin has been previously used in, in some nefarious transactions because of the, the way the blockchain works, you can actually track that. And institutional investors don't want to be holding assets that have been used in nefarious activities previously. So I think it's always important to consider that S of the ESG combination uh, when looking at this asset class as well. In terms of regulators, we, we talked about that. How sophisticated are they or not, as the case may be, in terms of understanding cryptocurrencies, understanding technology, understanding the blockchain and, and, um, and uh, all the activities that go with it? I would say that when we first started building this, the, the regulators were completely out of their depth and had no clue as to what's going on. Now, you know, over the last two to three years, you've had quite a significant uptick in the majority of those credible regulators that I referred to before, places like Singapore, Hong Kong, the UK, Switzerland, Barfin in Germany, uh, the SEC, obviously. Um, these sort of credible regulators from across the world have been spending a lot of time um, understanding the asset class and have actually had people come in, in, out of the industry into uh, those regulators to help guide them as well. Um, so I would say that we're in a very different place than we were two to three years ago. That said, we do continue to see strange decisions being made by regulators. I mean, the fact that the SEC continues to struggle with the approval of a spot-based ETF rather than a futures-based ETF which, you know, really is not the best product for investors. Um, the fact that they will not approve a spot-based ETF um, seems contrary to um, really the best interests of the investors that they're apparently trying to protect. So um, I think there are obviously issues still that uh, the regulators need to get their heads around. And what do you think those issues are? Well, how are you going to regulate a DeFi platform, if it's truly decentralized, who are, you, who are you going to, who are you trying to regulate? So I think it's almost like the, the sort of the change of mindset around, you know, the horse and cart versus the car. You got to think, I, I, I remember a story of someone telling me that when cars were first invented, because they tried to bring train regulations to that, they had a guy, you had to employ a driver. You had to employ someone to walk in front of your car, waving a flag. And you had to employ someone to put fuel into the car. So you're kind of always looking backwards at, at the prior uh, technology to try and implement regulation. I think that that's the thing. That's the gap that these regulators are trying to bridge is they're trying to implement regulatory frameworks around 
that we've seen around securities markets, but that really isn't something that you can implement around something like DeFi. You've got to you've got to take a step back and really completely understand it and have a have a very different approach. That's very uh, very interesting. Um, in terms of then kind of the regulatory view. Um, and one of the views certainly at EFG we have is that, uh, you know, maybe the largest banks, the systemically important banks are probably going to have a harder time given that they're more regulated than, than maybe the smaller uh, banks or, or, or wealth managers or, or investment banks. Um, uh, do you think there's a competitive advantage to be smaller right now than bigger? Absolutely. I mean, we're definitely seeing this. Uh, as I said, you know, with the pro- structured products launch, uh, that we have going on in Switzerland right now. I mean, the the only banks that can deal with us are the smaller boutique um, type firms that have, you know, that either they're family owned or you know they're just a bit more flexible in terms of the way they approach things. Certainly not the UBSs or the the Credit Suisses who, you know, they're they're trying as much as possible to remain conservative around this asset class and prudent and and. Um, you know, the, the smaller houses are moving a lot faster. Um, so I think that right right now with the way and the speed that this industry is changing, it pays to be nimble. It pays to be small and it pays to be adaptive and be able to make decisions quickly. And obviously a lot of the smaller companies that we've seen have sort of sprouted up over the last three or four years, um, you know, obviously very exciting but there's a lot of them <laughs> coming out uh, at the same time. How do you think the industry as a whole will kind of shape out um, over the sort of coming years? Do you think there's going to be lots of consolidation um, and maybe some businesses just can't survive, particularly if there's regulation be put to them? Yeah, I think um, a lot of businesses already are struggling with becoming regulated. Um you know, this was this is an industry that has been predominantly uh, dominated by people that have come out of Silicon Valley that have had this move fast and break things mentality. Whereas, obviously, as we know, traditional finance is not like that. You know, you have to move cautiously and uh, and do things carefully. Um, and uh, I think that this is this is the cultural gap that a lot of these organisations are really struggling with. Um, and you're seeing regulators saying enough is enough. Um, it's no longer acceptable that you are, you know, offering no KYC onboarding or um, derivatives to retail uh, customers that have no idea what these products are. Um, I think that, you know, what, what you're starting to see really is that the regulators are saying, okay, we need to, we need to see you, you, um, acting in a fit, a proper way. And you've seen uh, a number of these platforms being shut down. It almost seems like it's a coordinated effort by global regulators targeting some of these companies. And I think that will continue to the other point you make. I think consolidation is just going to be natural. Um, there are people that have moved faster um, and are larger and they're able to, you know, take the market through acquisition and, um, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of that already in this sector. Um, and I think you'll see that continue in the exchange space, certainly. 
Um, but I think also in the custody space as well, you're going to end up with just a small handful of very, very large custodians like you have in the traditional space um, where you only really have four of the very, very large custodians. That certainly makes a, makes a lot of sense. Certainly builds a nice little roadmap as to the, uh, the future of the, uh, of the industry. So mm. um, in terms of, Obviously, the big theme or certainly over the last few years has been this uh, institutionalization of digital assets. Um, uh, what are your thoughts on there? What, what sort of an investor telling you? Um, obviously, we've had quite a few strategists talk to us about inflation and kind of the, the classical sort of you know, what does the dollar mean anymore, that type mm-hmm. of thing. Um, um, are, are those the reasons why institutions are interested in uh, in cryptocurrencies? I would say there's definitely that. I mean, you know, when you are corporate um, trying to protect the purchasing power of the company's treasury, um, then you need to be thinking about the fact that fiat currencies arguably are no longer a store of value. Um, they no longer retain purchasing power. So you have to be thinking about other areas of store of value and, you know, <clears throat> gold, is effectively being demonetized by Bitcoin at the moment. Um, you're seeing gold do absolutely nothing through this period. It's astonishing, yeah. Seven percent inflation and gold doesn't flinch. <laughs> yeah, I mean, seven percent headline inflation. I mean, <laughs> yeah. what is it really yeah. in the back end? Um, and gold's done, as you say, nothing. So you're actually losing purchasing power by holding gold now as well. Whereas Bitcoin is obviously where a lot of the value is going. Um, and you know, Bitcoin's up well, 400, 500% over that period of time. Um, since May, March, 2020, when, when all of this, uh, COVID began and aggressive money printing. So I think there's that. I think the other element, which is very important for institutions actually is volatility. And it depends on the institution, obviously, but a lot of the institutions that we have on our platform are those that appreciate volatility and what it means for them in terms of trading returns. I mentioned previously the, um, the fund that we have and the focus that it has on market neutral alpha. Um, and that in crypto is, is so different to anywhere else in the traditional space. There's a lot of different arbitrage opportunities. And I think more and more institutions, particularly hedge funds are waking up to that and uh and wanting to move into crypto strategies so you know it starts generally with the family offices um the private banks have been paying attention you know for some time because obviously a lot of their clients are high net worth individuals and family offices um you're getting venture firms that have been active since the early days but now you're getting hedge funds and you get some of the bigger hedge funds as well and um this is where it's obviously really starting to make that next step into the institutional space. Mm. Well, the, the one I take note you know, very specifically is Soros and they're investing in Polkadot and some of the other sort of uh, platforms uh, and cryptos, of course. But, uh, you know, maybe we'll talk about that uh, in, in, in a few moments. Um, 
So let's talk about some of the volatility dampness that might come along and CBDCs as central bank digital coins. Is there a future, doesn't it? Um, I think you've touched upon a cultural issue, which I found quite fascinating, is, you know, call it the the um, the young entrepreneurs versus the grey suits, <laughs> call it uh, mm. uh, uh, a fight between the two. This seems like the the gray suit version of 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 digital what what's your thought thoughts around that i i'd say it's uh, probably the central bank version right. of digital which is exactly what it is um i i think you know as we as we sort of expressed before the problem with fiat currencies is that you've got central banks that just are printing and have to continue to print because you know, growth is just not coming. Um, technology generally is deflationary. Um, and so all the debt mountain that they're dealing with, they need to have some level of inflation to be able to, to, to deal with that debt. And so how do you get inflation when there's no growth? Well, you just create monetary inflation. You debase the money. And so, you know, there, there's no secret. This is, this is what the central banks are doing across the world, and they're doing it in, in, in cohort, effectively. So you're not noticing it as much as, as you would if suddenly it was just the, the Fed and the dollar was just debasing against every other currency. Because you've got every other major central bank doing exactly the same, you're just not noticing it as much. Um, so I would say that central bank digital currencies are no more than just a digitized version of, um, of those fiat currencies, but they come with a lot more sinister elements to them as well. I mean, I'm sure everyone has, has felt a little bit of shock and surprise at some of the government's behaviors in Western governments around what's happened with COVID. And a central bank digital currency suddenly means that you have every single transaction you make being monitored by the central bank. You know, they, they can very quickly create data patterns around you as an individual. And there was a Guardian headline, I think it was a Guardian or maybe the Telegraph, uh, the other day where the Bank of England had actually suggested that for Bitcoin, they wanted to have controls put in place around how people could spend Bitcoin. Now, I mean, if that, if that doesn't send slight alarm bells to people and the, the obviously highlight the need for some sort of decentralized currency, then, um, then, then probably people aren't paying attention. Um, I'd say the other thing around central bank digital currency is something that uh, Christine Lagarde has been um, has been quite vocal about at her time in the IMF. And uh, so when she was um, chief of the IMF, the IMF released a paper, so tail end of 2018, about how central bank digital currencies could actually be used to effectively remove cash entirely from society. And once you've removed cash entirely from society, then you end up in a situation when you can take interest rates significantly more negative. Now, if you're a highly indebted central bank, that is very much in your interest to take interest rates significantly more negative. But if you're a saver, how are you going to, you know, 
escape effectively these negative interest rates to such a degree that, you know, they're eating into your savings by anything from five to 10 to even higher percent per year. And so again, I think these are considerations that everyone needs to be aware of when talking about CBDCs. The other challenge, uh, certainly we've seen, you know, this year and certainly with uh, Elon Musk doing a bit of a U-turn is around kind of ESG, specifically around Bitcoin, mm. but other um, uh, cryptocurrencies. How, uh, you know, how do you think about that? And, and where do you think the direction is to try and overcome some of those concerns? I, there's some very interesting research that's been put together about how proof of work, which I believe and many proponents of cryptocurrency believe is essential to make sure that you don't, you can't ever freely press the button of printing more money. Um, the proof of work must be done. It must, it must be there to have a completely hard money. Um, but what's interesting about Bitcoin and, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we, we used to be a cryptocurrency mining company yeah. um, first. Now, when we were looking for places to source electricity, we were going to the cheapest sources of electricity. Um, often what we refer to as orphaned electricity. So to give you an example, our biggest plant was in northern Sweden, where there previously had been a very large forestry industry, but that had been scaled back due to, you know, wanting conservation of that forestry. But what they'd put in place to support that forestry industry was a whole load of hydroelectric power infrastructure. That hydroelectric power was effectively useless because the, the you know, the, the, the population um, decline that they'd seen post the decline of the forestry industry really didn't need that level of support. So they basically gave the electricity away for free just to be able to sustain those, those, those pieces of infrastructure. And I think this actually points to where Bitcoin can actually uh, lead to a more uh, green future is you have the infrastructure that would normally be closed down that provides clean energy to the planet. Um, and then, you know, at a point, you can take that Bitcoin and bring it back into the economy. So it's ultimately portable. You know, if you're trying to transport electricity over, you know, multiple kilometers, you're, you're, you're losing a lot of that electricity um, over that trans, um, transportation. So Bitcoin effectively acts like a battery to be able to bring that energy back into the economy. And I think that, you know, obviously you always have these, you know, alarmist headlines around the amount of energy used by Bitcoin and which country it's just surpassed and, and these sorts of things. And I think this, this is deliberately designed to create a reaction. Um, and unfortunately, it's just so far from the truth. Um, that uh, that it really is quite misleading. Um, as I say, all the Bitcoin, all the, sorry, the electricity that we use when mining was all orphaned electricity. Because as a miner, you can't afford to be paying national grid levels of, of, of price for electricity. You just can't. Because if you're not the most efficient miner, you're losing money. Um, because it is a very competitive uh, business and industry. So, um, yeah, I think that 
you know, this will eventually lead to, and we've seen it with the fracking in the US, there's a lot of, normally you have all the uh, excess natural gas that's fled uh, into the environment. That's actually now used to, um, to mine Bitcoin. Um, so actually, you're, you're already seeing the benefits to the planet on an environmental level of having Bitcoin miners having to go further and further afield. But that proof of work is essential to be able to make sure that you don't have someone being able to print the money because, you know, Ethereum's trying to move to proof of stake. That means the largest holders of Ethereum are effectively controlling the network. Well, that's back to central banking. That's back to the original problem, right? You want to have a decentralized money and that's what Bitcoin is. And that's why it's so so special as an asset. Let's, let's talk about some of the other platforms out there, uh, blockchain uh, currency platforms out there. Uh, obviously, um, the ones that I guess people know Bitcoin, I think, is the, the brand name gold standard, if there is such a thing. Um, and then we have Ethereum's also, um, you know, gaining a lot of uh, popularity. But then you have some of these others, I'm sure many of our listeners don't even know about, you know, Solana, which is obviously one that is certainly the Silicon Valley crowd seem to be crowding around, uh, you know, quite a bit. Uh, and, uh, and obviously Polkadot, which is, we talked about Soros, you know, earlier, is obviously behind that one. But um, as well, what, what, what are your thoughts about, you know, the different types of, um, you know, digital currencies and their use cases as things evolve? Because I suspect they're not all going to be doing the same thing. Um, and we'll have maybe different purpose. Um, uh, maybe you could just run through some of those kind of key ones and, um, and uh, you know, strengths and weaknesses of each. The way to th- think about each of these different blockchains that you've referred to is that they're effectively layer one um, protocols. So Ethereum already has a number of layer two protocols, things like Polygon, which can do um, effectively acts as a side chain to Ethereum, but you can do off-chain uh, transactions um, and reduce significantly the overall cost of doing transactions on the layer one, which we're seeing quite inhibitively in things like the NFT space, which is predominantly all on Ethereum. But, you know, people are paying less for the for NFT yeah. than they're actually paying in their gas fees. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that's an important point to note. Another important point to note is Bitcoin, in my view, is a is in a completely separate bucket. That is literally sitting there as a transfer of value, a monetary network that has already won. It's a $1.2 trillion network, hundreds of thousands of nodes across the world. It's in a different bucket. Everything that you're referring to, like Ethereum, Solana, Polkadot, these are all effectively smart contract networks um, where you can have applications on those networks. And, you know, they take different approaches. What we're currently going through is um, some auctions for the various different chains. So you have within Polkadot, you have a governance chain, which is called the relay chain. And then you have about 100 different parachains, which are effectively the chains within which you can run projects. And each of those chains is auctioned off for a two-year period. And so projects are in the process of, of, of bidding for those. And so the holders of that asset um, are able to participate in that and get given benefits through each of those auction processes 
which is very interesting and why I think Soros and other investors have really taken a shine to Polkadot. It's a very, very interesting and creative way to go out about building an overall community um, for, you know, smart contracts and application um, implementation. Um, there, are, there are others, of course. Um, you know, a lot of people will talk about Cardano. Um, you know, they've been promising to implement a smart contract network for years now and have not. And, you know, this is a, the fourth largest coin in all of crypto, which kind of speaks a little bit to the ridiculousness of some of these valuations. Um, but uh, yeah, there's there's lots of different ways of viewing these networks and, you know, they could be called Ethereum killers. That's what a lot of people refer to them as. Um, but I think that all of them have their own different nuances and, you know, Ethereum does obviously have the problem of high gas fees and, and that, that transaction issue, but gosh, the amount of, the amount of projects that are built on Ethereum is really, is really winning the network effect. And obviously the NFT space is predominantly uh, Ethereum as well. So let's talk about NFTs, obviously, um, um, kind of really sort of taken off, uh, I guess, uh, Beeple's 60, was it $66 million sort of auction for his, was it, I can't remember, first 5,000 days or I can't exactly know, recall the name now, but uh, obviously huge success, got a lot of headlines um, uh, and obviously sold, you know, previously some arts uh, as well and that kind of really captured the imagination and then you've got companies like uh, uh, OpenSea, there's probably the one that people probably know the most um, and obviously Coinbase announced their one, huge queue to get on. What's your um, you know thoughts around uh, how this is going to progress? Obviously you mentioned Ethereum is the, the, the prime beneficiary of that, but uh, how do you think that uh, progresses and will it ever turn physical? Look, from my personal perspective, I think NFTs are interesting. Um, I'm always cautious to dismiss anything in this space after uh, initially dismissing Bitcoin in 2009. Um, and I, I really equate it to the art market. I think, you know, it, it's like you, you could look at some of these cyber, cyberpunks or a bathing apes or, sorry, board ape yacht, ape yacht club and, and these sorts of pictures that have, um, you know, they're, they're interesting designs, but they're selling for millions of dollars as an NFT. Um, I think that it's really about, you know, the community, the excitement. It's almost like a, a hot gallery in London. If they decide an artist is going to be successful, then guess what? That artist is successful because they sell it to all of their big, big investors. And, and that's how it creates, you know, largesse and excitement and status around, ah, and this is exactly the same thing. It's just digital. So, you know, I can envisage a day where, you know, you'll be in the metaverse, you'll have your character in the metaverse who goes to meetings and does Zoom calls, but actually in the metaverse. And, you know, you walk into an art gallery in the metaverse and, well, Mo's Afsil has got some... Uh, some really cool art on the wall and you know, it's the same status as having your art hanging in a, in a gallery in London. And I think that's, that's where this is going. It's just all around that digital world, that metaverse that, that we're hearing more and more about. I think that's, um, 
that's the way to explain this in in my view i think nfts essentially you know right now we're seeing it first and foremost within the art market but i think that non-fungible tokens as nft stands for is essentially what will you know become your passport and your you know the deeds for your house and and these sorts of very important documents will be digitized as nfts and i think that's the way that we're going to see this going i think that it's it's you know it's logically entwined with the way the future of digital worlds are going i think the real assets piece is actually quite fascinating because ultimately you can see why governments are very interested in putting a lot of these kind of i guess inefficient processes on onto blockchain and be able to reduce the latency that's created in in all of this the savings could be absolutely enormous um over a relatively short space of time um i mean uh, you know who who are the type of companies or individuals you know are really focused on on moving it into the real world rather than in the metaverse <laughs> yeah um there's a very interesting company out of the u.s called figure uh run by a guy called mike cagney and he's been effectively using blockchain to digitize um mortgage mortgages right and uh helocs as they're referred Right. In in the US, so um, he's grown that company quite quite rapidly. Um, I think that is a very interesting uh, implementation. Obviously, as you say, you're removing uh, a lot of middlemen through a process like this. Um, also, trade finance, I think, is a industry that is overburdened with non-standardized paperwork, um, and that. That is an industry that I think we're going to see very disrupted by blockchain. Um, you know, the, the biggest sort of um, funds in that space struggle to scale because of the amount of document analysis that they need to do uh, in trade finance. So I think <clears throat> blockchain is going to really um, bring improvements to that world. But, you know, back to that original point, that becomes very deflationary as you're cutting a lot of people out of the process. You're cutting a lot of the workflow out of the process. And so that element is very, very deflationary. And so we're moving into a deflationary world due to all of this, these technology gains. But, you know, with the amount of debt we have out there, deflation is not a very pretty thing. So um, we're caught between a bit of a rock and a hard place. Certainly the central banks are. In terms of um, my last couple of questions is around the metaverse, obviously you've seen sort of Facebook make their big announcement, but many others are, uh, are, f- are following. Is it sort of real faddish? What's your, what's your, what's your instinct on this? Well, I, I actually had some personal experience recently. I, uh, I was living in Hong Kong. I recently left, but um, in Hong Kong, they have three weeks of quarantine in a hotel. And um, one of my investors actually said to me, well, you, you need to buy yourself a Quest Oculus Quest 2 headset. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, what are you talking about? I don't have time to play games. Like, it, it, that's not for me. He's like, no, 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 you don't understand. We can do meetings on that. We can sit and have a discussion like we would on a Zoom. And 
I can have, I can play 18 rounds of golf with you while we're having a discussion. So I was like, wow, okay, this is interesting. I bought myself the headset and, you know, I had a, had a one hour between meetings. Um, and so I said, well, I'll see if I can set this thing up to have a call with him later on. So I, I put it on and I set my alarm for the next meeting just because I didn't, didn't know whether or not I'd be able to see the time in this thing. So <clears throat> I set my alarm and, and you go in and you go through this setup period and they give you a sort of training where you get used to the controllers, the headset, and you're standing in this room, you've got this sort of desk in front of you and on the desk, there's all various different things like a table tennis bat, paper airplanes and rockets that you can pull a fuse out of and the rocket flies off. And you're just standing there just in wonderment, just like at this whole world of things that are happening around you. And suddenly my alarm goes off and I'm like, oh my God, I thought I'd been in there for like 10 minutes. I'd been in there for an hour playing around with this thing and it's, it's very um, engrossing. But what's interesting about it is if you and I are having a Zoom call, you can tell if there's more than two people on that Zoom call, very often people are looking at their phone or they're, you know, chatting with somebody else, whatever it might be. This is full engagement. When you're in the metaverse, you're fully engaged in what you're doing and who you're talking to. So, you know, I did do 18 rounds of golf with him uh, that weekend. Um, and uh, it was just fascinating. And there's no phones to distract you. You're really engaged in the conversation you're having. And in a funny kind of way, it's as real almost as, as actually being there. You, you feel like the person's with you and you're hanging out. So I think it will really change the way that we do meetings. I think, you know, Zoom was effectively a stopgap uh, for that. But, uh, I think it's going to be fascinating to see the way the metaverse changes things for us in this world of sort of, you know, digital connectivity. And then obviously cryptocurrencies is a big part of the metaverse. Well, again, you know, when you're, you're stood there with this headset on, um, you know, mucking around in these various different things. And, you know, you think about the next generations coming up, and you think, are, the, are these generations really going to think that the hardest, best money in the world is gold? Or are they going to think it's a, a digital currency? Well, Richard, well, thank you very much for, for, for that. Uh, obviously, a bold prediction. We will watch with uh, bated breath um, to see indeed whether that, uh, that comes through. Um, yeah, thanks again for, for uh, you know, a very good uh, summary. Uh, we'll definitely have you on again. Certainly, if we do hit the 100,000, maybe a celebratory drink or, or some sorrow. We'll see. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, I look forward to that in a few months. Uh, so that was uh, Richard Byworth from Equinex. So, uh, again, very, very interesting conversations. If you want to learn a little bit more, you know, just get in touch. And if there's, if there's any topics that came from that podcast, let us know and we'll do a bit of a deeper dive um, uh, as we move forward here. So uh, thanks again and see you next time. <laughs>